You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to NeuroFrontiers, produced in cooperation with the American Academy of Neurology. Your host is Dr. Anthony Alessi. Restless leg syndrome affects as many as 12 million Americans a year, yet it is often misdiagnosed and misunderstood. Dr. Carl Ansevin is an adjunct faculty member in the Department of Biomedical Sciences at Kent State University and the sleep specialist at the Ohio Neurologic Institute in Boardman, Ohio. He joins me to discuss solving the mystery of restless leg syndrome on neurofrontiers. Dr. Ansevin, welcome to ReachMD. Thank you, Tony. Dr. Ansevin, can you tell our audience and give them a brief description of what restless leg syndrome is and some of the symptoms? Restless leg syndrome consists of four major components. The first is an urge to move the legs. Second is the urge to move begins or worsens when you're sitting or lying down. Number three, the urge to move is partially or totally relieved by movement. And the urge to move is worse in the evening or night than in the daytime. The uh, symptoms that are described are sensory symptoms in the legs. can be described as tingling, crawling, burning, grabbing, pain, deep ache. The key to this is the urge to move the legs. And the sensation goes away when they do move them and, and it occurs at rest or in the evening. It seems that we've only started hearing about restless leg syndrome in the mainstream media over the past few years. Why is that? Well, we have treatment for it now. And I think people have become more cognizant of sleep problems as our system gets more and more sophisticated. And the dopaminergic agents are effective in treating this disorder and helping people sleep better. And so I think we're hearing a lot more because mainly the treatment-driven. In following up on that, I find in my practice, patients will often come into my office mistakenly convinced that they have restless leg syndrome based on TV commercials. And unfortunately, there's often no way to convince them otherwise, and they'll start shopping around until they find a physician to confirm this or treat them. Have you found some of this direct marketing to be a hindrance to the treatment of RLS? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, There are a lot of problems that can give you aching, throbbing, numbness, tingling, crawling sensations in the legs. Not everything, as we neurologists know, is restless leg syndrome. I think it's very important when you see a patient initially that you let them describe their sensations in their own words so that we don't put words into their mouth or take words out of the uh, television commercials. The second thing is it's important that I feel a neurologist or someone who's willing to take the time to do a neurological evaluation, see the patient. Specifically, there are a lot of patients out there with peripheral neuropathies who have similar complaints of symptoms, and restless legs itself can be secondary to peripheral neuropathies. It can be secondary iron deficiencies and other problems. So I think a lot of people are confused because not only with this, but other disorders because of the direct marketing. And I think it's very important that the patient sees someone knowledgeable in these disorders and who's willing to take the time to do a history and a physical exam, make a diagnosis. Who's at risk for restless leg syndrome? You brought up the topic of patients with peripheral neuropathy. Are they more susceptible to restless leg syndrome? Is there any particular gender-specific susceptibility? Yeah, there are two types of restless leg syndrome. There's primary restless leg syndrome, which is used to call idiopathic, and there's secondary restless leg syndrome. The primary can be as a higher tendency to be inherited. It's more common in females by two-to-one ratio. In some of these inherited cases, the uh, serum iron levels are low. Secondary restless legs can be set due to peripheral neuropathy is probably the most common thing I see. It can be secondary iron deficiency from any cause. It can be due to medications. Some of the dopamine antagonists can bring on restless leg-type symptoms. 
So there are multiple causes, and you need to do a complete history and physical exam and before making this diagnosis. Is there a genetic basis? You mentioned that briefly about specific groups, but have we found a genetic basis for RLS? Yeah, there is a familial tendency, especially in the younger onset patients. The strongest genetic data came out of Iceland about 2007, where they screened a huge population base. What they found are SNPs, and I confess I don't totally understand this, were specific deficits in certain SNPs and chromosome 6P in this Icelandic huge cohort, and the data was fairly robust there. The other information comes from German and Canadian cohorts that found similar problems in similar areas uh, as reported by Winkleman. And so there is data coming out, but it's very difficult because there are so many secondary causes for restless legs, and there are not very many databases as big as, say, the Icelandic group. I find one interesting point that you've mentioned and keeps coming up is the idea of iron deficiency. In some patients, it's hard to document the actual iron deficiency. Is it worth trying to treat empirically? I think all patients with restless legs should have a serum ferritin done, irregardless of whether or not they have an anemia. If it is low, and by low we mean uh, less than 45 to 50 range, then they need an evaluation to find out why ferritin level is low. I don't think it's a good idea to, quote, treat empirically without trying to find the cause. After a, an appropriate evaluation is done, if it's a woman, perhaps she has heavy menstrual periods, perhaps someone has a peptic ulcer history, perhaps they have something worse, say malignancy in the colon. After appropriate studies have been done, then, of course, treat. But that may mean stools for cold blood. It may mean uh, colonoscopy. It may mean uh, gastroscopy. And, of course, it always means a complete history and physical exam. Carl, do you find more physicians are becoming familiar with RLS rather than in the past? Yes, absolutely. This is good and bad. I mean, uh, it's good because it can help a lot of people. The medications work. It's bad because you can also miss a lot of things. For instance, the iron question is an extremely important question. It's important that, first, most people don't even know to check it, but second, if you do find it, it's important to be a physician first and realize that, hey, I better find out what's causing this before I go prescribing iron. I think it's good that this and other sleep disorders are being better recognized and accepted, but I think it's very important that they see appropriate people, neurologists or sleep physicians, in their evaluation. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to NeuroFrontiers on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and joining us to discuss the mystery of restless leg syndrome is Dr. Carl Ansevin. Dr. Ansevin is an adjunct faculty member at the Department of Biomedical Sciences in Kent State University and a sleep specialist at the Ohio Neurologic Institute in Boardsman, Ohio. Dr. Ansevin, we were just talking a little bit about the diagnosis of restless leg syndrome. And with sleep disorders, we often stumble upon a history of what's periodic leg movements of sleep. Can you explain to our audience a differential between these two diagnoses? Yes. The restless leg syndrome is a symptom complex. In other words, a patient complains of these sensations in their legs. They have the urge to move. When they move, it's better, and it usually occurs during rest and is worse in the evening than the daytime. That's restless legs. There's also a periodic leg movement disorder or periodic leg movement syndrome. In this disorder, the legs actually move, and they move during sleep for the most part. And there are specific diagnostic criteria that have been laid out for this. 
uh, in terms of the duration of the movement and the frequency of the movement, etc. But this is more something you can actually see uh, with a polysomnography study. Uh, you can see it on the video recording. You can also see it on the EMG that's done during the polysomnography. It's a movement problem versus a symptom complex. Is it a similar treatment approach? Interestingly, the same drugs seem to work well for reasonably well for both. The patient population may be a bit different. With a periodic leg movement disorder, there's always been a controversy between the neurological sleep doctors and the pulmonary sleep doctors as to what exactly this is. The neurologists, like myself, have seen this in patients with neurological problems, patients with multiple sclerosis and spinal cord involvement, and other neurological problems often have spontaneous periodic leg movements. The more general population, when they undergo polysomnography, since many of the sleep laboratories are run by pulmonary doctors, they're always looking for hypopneas, and slowing, hypopneas being slowing down in the respiration. A lot of the pulmonary physicians feel strongly that there is no such thing as periodic leg movements. It is all associated with hypopneas and brief arousals that just happen to be more prominent in the legs. So that's sort of an ongoing controversy. From a neurological perspective, I have seen many patients with primary periodic leg movements, but I've also seen many with hypopneas preceding them. So how do you treat that? If they have a hypopnea beforehand, and that's what's causing the legs to jerk and wake up, of course, I think you'd want to consider treating that rather than just plug them on a medicine. Well, Carl, you've actually touched on an interesting point because so many of these patients with RLS, restless leg syndrome, also have a more generalized sleep disorder, and there's that overlap. How do you approach their treatment? So are you addressing the hypopnea as opposed to the movement disorder? How do you go about approaching that? Well, it depends specifically on what the problems are. If the problem is simply symptoms of restless leg syndrome, I do a good history and physical exam, a rule out neuropathies, iron deficiency, renal insufficiency, and all the other problems, and then I generally will treat with just restless leg syndrome. If it's a periodic leg movement disorder, this should be diagnosed. First, it's a history of the bed partner or an observer and the patient themselves, so the, the bed being all messed up in the morning and kicking everything in sight. The only way to make that diagnosis is with polysomnography. I really think it should be done in neurology sleep labs because we tend to have better video because sometimes we do epilepsy recordings in the same labs. And, of course, we're more cognizant of electromyography and DEG and most of the testing that goes into polysomnography. The periodic leg movements, I will do polysomnography on them because I do want to see whether or not there are hypopneas associated with it. And then both groups, I will tend to treat with the uh, dopamine agonists even before I put them in the polysomnography lab because I want them to sleep in the lab. If they don't sleep in the lab, it's very difficult to do a sleep study. It can't be done. So I, I tend to treat both, and, of course, monitor the uh, periodic leg movements to try and determine whether or not there's a respiratory event associated with it. Carl, after we make a diagnosis of RLS and we've ruled out iron deficiency and others, how do you approach your treatment? You mentioned the dopaminergic medications. Yes, the dopamine agonists are the treatment of choice now, and it's mainly uh, Primapex or Mirapax. You can also use Cinemat, but the problem with this is that oftentimes people will get what's called augmentation with a shorter-acting Cinemat, and you can use the opioids, oxycodone, and uh, codeine, and before it was taken off the market, propoxyphene. And then, of course, the benzodiazepines have been used for a long time, and clonazepam. And it seems that all these medicines work, the preferred treatment being the dopamine agonists.
Do you just use them at night? Yeah, about two hours before going to bed. The problem is that some people will get this augmentation phenomena. This is much more marked in people who are treated with Cinemet. The usual treatment is two hours before bedtime. Now, if you, they start to get augmentation, which is defined as the symptoms starting earlier in the evening, by two hours earlier than the original time, and they also became worse and more frequent, and then it sometimes will spread into the daytime. If they have augmentation, then some people end up getting treated in the daytime. The first thing you usually do is switch them off of the cinnamon if that's the agent, but this is really a sleep evening problem. Symptoms are usually worse between, say, 12 midnight and 4 in the morning, but the problems people have are falling asleep with it, initiating sleep, and, and staying asleep when they happen to wake up and they have these sensations. So the treatment starts at two hours before bedtime, the pill, and, and you try and treat with a minimum effective dose and try and prevent augmentation. Carl, do you find a role for support groups for patients with RLS? We see them cropping up in various communities. Is there a good role for them? I think support groups are good for everyone, but I think that you tend to get, in a lot of different support groups, and this is my own personal bias, you get people with, the, of course, the worst cases in these groups and the people who are more obsessed with the disorder. And the best treatment for this is to see a physician knowledgeable in it so they can give them straight information. You know, with the Internet and so many forms of communication, people get all sorts of ideas out there. And actually about 50% of people with restless legs are depressed, and that goes with all the sleep disorders. Depression goes with a lot of them. And so you get a a group of, say, a a biased, jaundiced group, in my opinion, uh, sometimes with the support groups. But, of course, they're useful if a person is dealing with something. But the treatments are so effective. I would hope that they're not as much need for a support group for this as, say, something with like Alzheimer's or Parkinson's. Any future treatments we should know about? There's always new things coming down the line. You know, when they had the patch, the Nupigen patch, uh, before they took that off the market years ago, there were studies on that. But for the most part, the treatment we have is effective. The main problem is rolling out other sleep disorder problems, other neurological problems. The best advice is to see someone knowledgeable in both those areas. I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Carl Ansevin, adjunct faculty member in the Department of Biomedical Sciences at Kent State University and sleep specialist at the Ohio Neurologic Institute in Boardman, Ohio. Dr. Ansevin, thanks again for being our guest today on NeuroFrontiers. Thank you, Tony. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to NeuroFrontiers on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. NeuroFrontiers is produced in cooperation with the American Academy of Neurology. For more information about this or any other show, please visit ReachMD.com, which now features on-demand podcasts.